and welcome to A Country Podcast where we look at issues that were controversial in 1985 and realise even then, even then, dear A Country Pals, A Country Practice was better at discussing them than some of our leaders are in 2022. I'm Melanie Tate. Kim Lester, how are you? Oh, I shouldn't laugh, should I? It's a, it's We shouldn't serious, laugh. But yes, but yeah. this has been an eye-opening episode. It was so interesting and I cannot wait to talk to you about it, Mel. In so many ways. Yeah. Like we thought we were going into one episode and it turned out it was dealing with a bunch of stuff. Mm. But I'm surprised they just didn't spread over a few episodes when you've got 96 to, <laughs> to cover. It, this is like... Chef's Kiss 1985, peak a country practice, I reckon. Yeah, I, I agree with you. So, Kim, shall we have a bit of a recapciano? Let's do it. Just give me two seconds because I'm going to. I might actually say that again. Let's have a recapitano. That's better than capciano. I don't know where that. <laughs> can, I get, can I get some roll of you saying five different versions of capitano, capciano, <laughs> <Yeah>. calypsiano? <laughs> <laughs> Kim, could we have a recaps lock, please, <laughs> today? <laughs> All right. Okay. Vicky is heavily pregnant with little Tom and Charlotte in her belly, uh, and she's trying her <laughs> best to manage the juggle of being a working, soon-to-be mother. Simon, very wisely, I think, tries to convince her that she actually, I think that should be they, Need a house. Yeah, but it never is the whole time. It's Vicky's responsibility for the whole two hours. So they need a cleaner. But Mel, it's 1985 and outsourcing domestic chores is not yet just a given for the middle classes. Can I just pop in something mm-hmm. here that I'm very it's it's very bougie of me, Kim. Mm-hmm. It's very embarrassing. But it's 2022 and I pay my cleaner who comes in here on occasion, depending on my mental health. <laughs> She comes more often when I'm a bit mental. Um, I pay exactly the same as what they paid oh, in really? 1983. Yeah. Wow, Mel. So that's really ex- that's a so Mrs. C is a really really expensive cleaner for 1983, or I'm ripping off my cleaner in I 2022. I think that's maybe more likely the case, Mel. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't. I haven't used a cleaner since I used to have a cleaner in Canberra, and I loved it. Yeah. I just used to love coming home. Oh, it's to the best. A clean house. Um, haven't done it here except for a time when my parents were coming to visit and it it had just Mm -hmm. gotten so out of hand that at very short notice I called a cleaning company and said, can you come and clean my house? And I think I paid way too much. I think it was like end of lease prices. Oh, my gosh, like in the 300s. (laughs) It was up there, yeah. And Mrs C prices by the sound (laughs) of things. It was very expensive, but they did a good job, so thanks. Thankfully. Um, Matron Sloan is staying alone at Dr. T's vineyard. And since there's been some recent crime in the valley, Bob decides he uh, that she needs a guard dog. Vicky convinces him to take a miniature pointer, which Maggie, very uncharacteristically, I think, allows to just sit next to her in the hospital all day. Wasn't that a quirky little storyline? And line? yet she won't have flowers. I know. <laughs> 
Anywho, uh, look, what we're really here for, Mel, is the two main guest storylines. One is about young Gavin, a boy who who's put on a bit of weight since his mum died. His dad, Luke Carpenter, isn't sure how to handle it. His dad, Luke Carpenter. It's Luke Carpenter think, from Neighbours. I think his dad's name might be Wayne, but it's Luke Carpenter from Neighbours. Um, <laughs> he's not sure how to handle it, so he opts for fat shaming and belittling his son's ability to play football. That's a good way to handle it, isn't it? <sighs> the worst more on that we'll get to that one of the only grown-ups around who actually understands gavin is alice mckenna a traveling music teacher who lives in a caravan but she's made a big uh and very appreciated contribution to the community when alice is hospitalized with untreated diabetes nurse judy loveday your favorite mel discovers that alice (laughs) actually has male genitalia doesn't take long for and behaves in yeah just behaves in yes. sort of the usual Judy Love Day yes, manner. That's right. It doesn't take long for word to spread, thanks inadvertently to Judy to Judy Love Day. Uh, yeah, and the thug leading the charge to drive Alice out of town is Gavin's dad, so, Luke Carpenter. Luke Carpenter. Mel, should we start with some musings before we really get into this? Absolutely. What were your musings? Omg, the geisha costume. <laughs> yeah what were your thoughts yeah. on the gate there was this scene where the uh alice who was a traveling music teacher was teaching students about i think it was meant to be japanese music or it could have been chinese music because i think there might have been, been yeah. a mishmash of cultures being mm. used in that scene and she dre- she dressed up as like a full-blown white painted face geisha yeah. which we would we wouldn't have no. today, but at the same time, Alice McKenna was such an earnest, yes. kind character that I really think her intention oh, no, was I don't think to that- educate the kids about. Rather, that she was not at any time poking fun no, at those cultures. No, not at all. Not at she? all. No, absolutely not. It is just a product of its time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't. Yeah. It's oh, this show. Man, <laughs> it's so just full of. It's so full of interesting things. It certainly is. <laughs> and what other musings did you have? Um, only that Dr. T is, he annoyed me in this, the way he was so judgmental about Gavin's weight in uh, the um, uh, consultation with Wayne. Mm. Just mm-hmm. He was very judgy. How did you feel about that? Let's get into it, Mel. Or, or do you have any musings? Well, I've just got a couple of musings I'd like to add. Mm-hmm. Um, I I really tried to research why they called Gavin Fat Ollie as a oh, yeah. um, nickname. I asked all my older friends, you know, like my friends that are about 10 years older than us. Mm-hmm. Couldn't find out why. I don't know. So if anybody knows why somebody would be called Fat Ollie as opposed to like Fat Gav or was it because his name was Gavin. Did it have anything to do with a lolly that was big at the time? Because remember he got the um, football uniform and – yeah. He was horrified that it was black and white, striped, and the kids already call him Fat Ollie. And I thought, I wonder if there's a lolly that. Yeah, but we were kids at that age. Yeah, no, I don't And I don't, I don't remember an, a, a lolly at that age. Um, okay, so my, my other musings were there was a funny dog joke with the dog <laughs> in the paper. I don't know what that was. <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to point out that really occurred to me in this is I think Matron and Terence actually have really great chemistry they when they're out and about on the town. They do. And I think that the minute Matron is in normal garb and not in that 
frumpy white bloody nurse's outfit. She's so sexy. Yeah. Don't you think? She's just like she's so stylish and fun and like sexy. And I just was thinking I think Matron and Terence should have had a romance yes. and that's a real shame that they didn't. I, you have just reminded me that the same thought crossed my mind when I was watching that. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah, Terence really enjoys Maggie mm. and she is just a different person when she's in the club and she's in her own gear and all that kind of stuff. She's chem. just so, yep, great Cam. Also, now this is a little bit weird, mm. a bit of a weird admission to have. But I felt a little bit attracted to Bob Hatfield in episode one. <laughs> because this because he gave Maggie the dog or? Yes. And because there were a few scenes beforehand where he was at Vicky and Simon's house talking about the dog or something like that. And there was just something I thought, oh, he's quite attractive. I think he's only in about his early 50s, mm-hmm. you know, like. Maybe I'm aging into Bob Hatfield <laughs> is what I was thinking. I just was finding him like very, like his kindness, his his loveliness, very alluring, Kim. He, and it might be, I might be ovulating. Like <laughs> let's not take it too seriously. It could be that time in my cycle where, Look, <laughs> where I'm feeling very, because I'm very attracted to lots of men at the moment, which is, yeah, like everybody, like I, it's like I'm on heat. That, yeah. So, yes, and also... I was very attracted to Simon in this mm-hmm. episode, even though he was taking none of the domestic load. No. <laughs> yes. Um, so usually that would turn me well, off, but I kind of loved it. Simon was very characteristically, and we'll get into this, but Simon was very characteristically uh, accepting of Alice. But Bob, he was. I he shone with his. I mean, you know, I know it's. I know what that rewarding an ally is a little bit on the nose, but he was. He was being an ally. Um, Kim, all of our people except for Jared, Judy Love Day were yeah. allies in this. Yeah. That was one thing that made me just love this. And, in fact, I, I was so in love with this show that I sent you a message saying, Kim, I want to keep doing the podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like that they're just so beautiful because it was our character. It was, like you said, a country practice at its best where the guest stars got to shine mm. and um, our characters got to show yeah. their moral compass, which was really, really beautiful. Maybe we need to well, do so- a 1985 only like we just need to yeah, we just look at the whole series like we just don't look at anything past 1986 because yeah. i reckon the jump the shark moment well not jump the shark moment but i don't think we've enjoyed the episodes as much ever after donna died oh but we liked the sophie ones that was after are donna. they after donna yeah, died, after are donna. They? okay so after sophie died we don't like any of the episodes <laughs> and <laughs> alex much. going to yeah look I just think not, up to 1985, everything I've seen is just so thoughtful and oh, yeah. handled with care. Yeah. And examined yes. with sort of kindness and generosity. Yes. Um, let's look at some of those things right. because this episode has a whole, you know, fat storyline about a fat kid mm. and – Katie on our uh, Facebook page said that she had to stop watching it um, because of that. And I understand that because Gavin's experience as a kid was really similar to my experience as a kid. I grew up as a fat kid. Yeah. And so and had and probably just as fat as Gavin, you know, he's just a bit chubby Mm. and it sort of became the family's problem in my life. I was taken to the doctor too. The doctor had advice Mm. over what I should do. Um, And it's really, I can see why 
Katie would find it triggering and not want to watch yeah. it anymore. And I'm not sure if I was watching it just cold, whether I would have continued watching it either, because it's pretty painful to watch how children, how that child is treated yeah. throughout this um, episode. Um, I think the the doctors, so that doctor surgery bit was very, very realistic. And what I thought was really interesting about it, Kim, and this is certainly the same as my experience as a kid, is that the the child, Gavin, mm-hmm. the child, me in my situation, is blamed for mm. it and is is forced into the solution themselves, taking charge of it themselves, yeah. which is just, I mean, as adults now, don't you think that that's insane? Like yeah. how old is Gavin in this? He's probably about 11 yeah, or 12, he seems like reckon, he's about 11. isn't he? Yeah. So I was seven when my first medical intervention into my fatness was about was – and I remember that sense of personal responsibility then as a seven-year-old about having made myself fat and how I would have to get out of being mm. fat myself through my own choices seven. and through all that kind of stuff. It's madness, absolute madness. Mm. Um, and so I, I don't know, like watching this character and the way the poor kid negotiates it with that crazy Lou Carpenter father, <laughs> like he's insane. Yeah. Don't you think he's insane? He's really and all over the place too. Like he's yeah. you got to play football and then don't even try. The kid, don't even bother trying yeah, to play football because he can't do it. Abs- yeah, there's no consistency. Mm. And like and, and the kind of um, just like little things that he was, the way he would speak to his son about, eating food. He didn't ever try to understand why he might have needed that for comfort because the child's mother had just died. Like, of course, he needed some sort of, and he was being bullied at school constantly. Mm. Plus, the father hadn't bought him any clothes that fit him either. Mm. That's another, like, everything was sort of, the odds were against this kid, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. What did you think that a country, I, I would have, I would have liked them not to be as I I still thought the show was a bit blamey blamey yeah um on the fat kid and the fat kid's sort of choices and things like that I don't think he was quite shown enough it's interesting to compare to how much the show overtly overtly stated that Alice McKenna should be accepted for who she was and that Mm. she was a woman and that she saw herself as a woman and therefore she should be considered so. Uh, and pretty much all of the characters, Judy Loveday had to be the the character that caused the conflict in the story, but everybody else in the town oh, was on board yeah. with this very, and that's great. I'm not, well, you know. Except for Luke, but, Luke Carpenter. Except for Luke Carpenter, but even he kind of came around in the end. It's interesting that there wasn't any other than Alice being really kind and and um, just being a mate to Gavin, which was what he needed, was just somebody to listen to him and, and mm. connect with him. But nobody else had there was that conversation about Gavin being accepted for who he is yeah. or being, you know, not being judged was not had in the same way that um, the conversation was being had about Alice. No, and you know what's a very interesting thing about it too, Kim, and I want to say this in a sensitive way, um, there's an interesting thing about living in a body that you don't feel like you belong in. And I would say that for many people that have grown up in a world that's unaccepting of their fatness, that that's that's something that they understand very, very deeply 
I look at my own sort of, I hate the word journey, but with fatness kind of thing, mm. I have had four operations to try and change that. Mm. So four operations to try and change my body, to try and make my body something that it's not, something that I don't feel that it should be. So really there are two interesting storylines to put side by side. Yeah. And like you said, um, there were two things that really stuck out to me about the telling of the trans storyline with Bunny. One was that the language that she used is still language that's used today, which is incredible and beautiful Mm. because it means they actually did their research, I would imagine. When she's sitting at the table having the conversation with Cheryl and Cheryl says, why do you have to do this or something like that? I can't remember what Shirley says. She says it sensitively and beautifully. And um, Bunny says, because I am a woman. Yes. Like it's not, you know, yes. like it's 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 sort of, it's not even, it's not like, oh, because I feel like dressing in women's clothes or I feel like this or I feel like that. It's because I am a woman. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting was uh, the casting of a woman in that role mm. and not a man dressed mm. as a woman for that time. Because even, so I I remember sort of maybe five or six years ago when my you know, creative partner and bestie Priscilla Jackman was directing the Kate McGregor story mm-hmm. at Sydney Theatre Company. And around the same time, they made a series about Carlotta on television. Mm-hmm. And both of those shows were considered forward, forward sort of thinking mm-hmm. and forward casting because they cast women in those roles. Like ideally now and five years later, if we, char- we cast trans yes, people. yeah. But back then it was really seen as a step forward that it wasn't a man in a male yeah, actor. Yeah, in it drag. wasn't Jeffrey Tambor from Transparent, for example. Exactly, exactly. And so for them, for a country practice to have have cast a woman in this role in nineteen what what are we? Eighty eighty five. Five? It's pretty extraordinary. You know, like even though it's we see it it's backwards today, it's not something we would do today. At the time I would imagine it was very forward and very open-hearted casting yeah 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 it's interesting you say that Mel because I found when I was doing my research for to talk about the issue this week I found an article about this episode with Bunny Brook um talking about that casting and interestingly and I'm sure this was just considered the norm at the time I don't I don't want to sort of um criticised Bunny Brook for the language that she used, but she refers to the character of Alice as he uh, throughout the article. So as I read this, just be mindful that that's that's mm-hmm. how she's referred to it. But it says Alice, a transsexual, is played by veteran actress Bunny Brook, who said she was delighted to be given the chance to play such a complex and controversial role. I've played so many straight parts, it's good to play one with a little bit of a twist to it, she said. There were two big challenges to the role. First of all, not to fall into the trap of trying to look like a man. That would have destroyed the credibility of the person because obviously he felt more at home as a woman, she said. It's not a bit of camp nonsense. He's he's a very honest person. Instead of trying to be terribly butch, I have tried to play him as the woman I think he would have wanted to be. The other challenge was to resist the temptation to put on a lot of jewellery, beads and baubles and things, and turn him into a drag queen, which this person isn't either. And then it just goes on to say that um, Bunny 
paid tribute to the scriptwriters, um, David Boutland and Leon Saunders, who we've spoken to on the podcast, mm-hmm. uh, who she said handled the character with sensitivity. So oh, yeah, I love this last line. She she, <laughs> she paid tribute to JNP for, for taking on the storyline. And she says, after all, a country practice is a weedy show. And I'm not saying that detrimentally, but it is as wholesome as cornflakes. And I think they are very brave to tackle such an issue. I don't think anyone who talks about a country practice has ever watched a country practice. This show is not yeah. wholesome uh, at times. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that perhaps there was this, you know how like we found, Kim, that in people about 10 years older than us, mm. they were just too cool to watch yes. it at the time? And you know, I get like it. it was just yeah. that perception of it being, you know, like that. But what's what's really interesting too about what Bunny had to say. And Bunny, I think, there's no great confirmation, but I think she was very involved in the queer world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, look, which we'll get to when sure. we talk about her a little bit later. What I was going to say about like hearing all of all of that detail that she's put into this character, mm. doesn't it actually show the calibre of actor that they would get for a guest role for a start? Oh, yes. Like this is, what, this is two weeks' work? At the most yeah, for her, yeah. it would have been. And that's how thoughtful she was about it. And that's how much detail she went into preparing this, you know, and she she understood the importance of what this character would be telling Australia, mm. like the, you know, eight or nine million people or how many people mm. were watching it. It's just it just says so much about this show, yeah. all of that, doesn't oh, it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So on that note, I've just been looking into how being trans in the 80s was perceived. All right, All It Takes is the name of these episodes. Uh, From season five, they went to air on the 17th and 18th of June 1985. And the big story in the news that week, and it was a massive story, was that 41 passengers were still trapped on the TWA Flight 847, uh, which was a plane that was carrying 153 passengers from Athens to Rome. Sorry, I keep feeling like I'm about to burp. So my dinner's repeating on me. Um, uh, when it was <laughs> hijacked, in. yeah, <laughs> when it was hijacked by Hezbollah by a Hezbollah fringe group. Right. Uh, so that was the big story of the time. And Mel, the number one song. I'd never heard of this song. Would I lie to you? By the Eurythmics. Look into no. oh, it's not that one. <laughs> that was what popped into my Look head into too. My eyes. No. <laughs> Can't you see they're open wide? What was that song? That was, would I lie to you? That was Would I Lie to You as well. But it was like that was two first names, a band with two first names. It was like Millie Vanilli. No, it wasn't Millie Vanilli. No, I have to look it up because I bet it's like Charles and Barry. It's like. Um, what is this? Would I lie to you? Would I lie no, to it's, you? No, it's nothing like <laughs> anything you've heard. I can't even remember. I listened to it this afternoon I and I still can't remember it. It's so it. weird. Yeah. Still can't remember it. Charles and Eddie. I was close. It was Charles wow, and Eddie. Wow, that's a boring name for a band. <laughs> Wasn't it? Anyway, yeah. but that's like the one. Like Mel and Kim. Like who was. I mean. We both remember the Charles and Eddie song and not the Eurythmics song. And the Eurythmics are like Annie Lennox has one of the best voices in the business. And the Eurythmics is a great name for a band. (laughs) But anyway, Would I Lie to You by the Eurythmics, uh, tune redacted from this podcast. (laughs) It's the number one song. So, Mel, what I've done to talk about 
just the issue of being trans in the 80s is I found three really interesting articles. One was written in 2021 um, from Rolling Stone, and we'll share the link to it. One I got from a 1985 newspaper clipping, and one is a uh, first-person telling of the experience um, from a 2016 Medium article. So I'm just going to read a little bit from each of those for you. Let's start with the Rolling Stone article. So this came out late last year, and it looks at how far we've come, but also how far we've got to go in terms of rights for trans people, just even, even you know, rights to um, identify legally mm. without having to go before a committee of doctors. You know, it's just this no- these nonsense laws that mm. it still exist. I won't get into that too much, but I found this paragraph interesting uh, just in terms of a way of setting up this issue. I'm just going to make this bigger. God, my eyes. They're going, Mel. They're going. <laughs> we are getting so old. <laughs> okay, I need to get out one of those... Um, you know those square magnifying glasses you put over a page? Yeah, oh, my to- God. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> We're not far from Because you've got your glasses I've on I've got my glasses everything. on, There's yeah. No and, I've, and my screen is big. Like, it's a big screen. <laughs> anyway, it's not as if being transgender is some new shiny subculture here to change up the status quo. Gender-affirming medicine can be traced back through history, including to the ni- early 19th century, during which Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexual Science in Berlin became a focus for hormonal modifications. Hirschfeld, a gay Jewish physician, later fled Berlin when the Nazi regime came to power. Over in the UK, between 1930 and 1950, British surgeon Archibald McKindo constructed over 60 vaginas. And let's not forget Danish. Wow. Yeah. Uh, let's not forget Danish artist Lily Elbe, mm. played by Eddie Redmayne in 2015 film The Danish Girl, who underwent a series of treatments in the 30s to reconcile herself female. In the 40s, Irish medical student and trans man Michael Dillon became the first known person to use testosterone for the purpose of gender affirmation. For Lily and Michael and even Olympian Mark Weston, who had affirmation surgery in 1936, each needed to remove their former identity to survive. For others, surgery isn't necessary. Life as a trans person can be an unsupported and unregulated path. So that was from the Rolling Stone. And I really mm-hmm. uh, I recommend reading that article if you're interested in this issue because it, it it's quite, quite in-depth and it looks at the current and the past uh, of this issue. And we'll link to all of these on our um, show notes. Yes, yes. So this one I don't have a link to because it's just from a newspaper archive, but this one is from The Age from January 1985. The title is Born in the Wrong Body. And this is, um, I'm not going to, it's quite a long article and it's, again, it's sort of one of those explainer articles that that we find on the social issue of the time, but um, it's a really interesting one. If you want to find out who your real friends are, change your sex, reads a sign in the kitchen of a halfway house for transsexuals in the Sydney suburb of Petersham. I mean, what a great opening line for starters. Mm, mm. Oh, sorry. A transsexual may be defined as an individual anatomically of one sex who firmly believes that he or she belongs to the other sex. This belief is so strong that the transsexual is obsessed with the desire to have his or her body appearance 
and social status altered to conform with that of his or her rightful gender. It appears that few friends, or indeed society at large, can cope with such a desire, and this has placed transsexuals in the most unenviable of positions. According to the House's founder and manager, Roberta Perkins, transsexuals are the most oppressed subgroup in society. Roberta says there are about 500 transsexuals in New South Wales. She became increasingly aware of the problems they faced during her research for a BA at Macquarie University. She studied transsexuals in King's Cross and divided them into four groups, showgirls, strippers, prostitutes, and bar girls. Override, the overriding thing she learned was that many transsexuals were in desperate need of accommodation. Many of them, especially those aged 17 or 18, were very upset, angry, pushed out of their family homes, always shifting mm. as some landlady or other discovered they were transsexuals. They are often, oh. yeah, they are often held to blame for things. On top of being semi-nomads, they are also suffering from terrible guilt and anxiety. At this time, she was working as a counsellor for young transsexuals at Sydney's Wayside Chapel. I found it very hard to place them. Women's hostels would not have them, neither would men's. They might get raped. Co-ed ones might, but that was dubious. And even then, they were made to feel uncomfortable, she says. Wherever they went, they were persecuted. That's terrible. Mm, yeah. Even now, when transsexuals are better understood by society, she says, many live in terror of being sprung. Roberta Perkins says some people are not happy about publicity because they say it will bring us undone. But... We need the publicity to make us understood instead of people thinking we hang around toilets and molest little children. She says one of the problems of socialization is that when transsexuals have a sex change operation, they think they will be real women, but they are just going to have a change of genitals. The surroundings will not change. They think they will be more acceptable, but they also have to have a change of mind. We preach here that you have got to see yourself as a woman before you have the operation. If people would only accept women with penises, men with penises, social acceptance is what transsexuals really strive for. Gosh. So that was, uh, you know, from 1985. And then finally, Mel, this article from 2016, this was written anonymously in um, on the website Medium. The headline is, this question was going unanswered on Quora. What? was it like to be transgender in the 1980s? Did you have a vocabulary and concepts for your identity and who you were as trans? Who did you identify with? Who were your role models? How did the culture of the 1980s make your life easier or more difficult? What other aspects of the 80s shaped your identity as trans? How do you think your experience then differed from the experience of people now who have greater internet access to support and visibility in the media? I'm intrigued that this question has been sitting here for two, two and a half years, unanswered by any of my 1980s trans generation. I conclude that A, there are very few of us, and or B, we are all woodworked, probably both. Woodworked? Yeah, I looked that up and really all I can gather is that they're, you know, when someone comes out of the woodworks, they're, right. it's, she's referring to being in the woodworks. Right. I think of the 1980s as the latter part of the trans dark ages. Perhaps someday we'll see the present time as the middle ages leading to the enlightenment. I hope so. At best, we were called transsexuals. If we were heterosexual women, we were classified as homosexual male transsexuals. 
Transgender, trans, cis were not terms in use. Non-binary, gender fluid weren't known concepts. Even gender identity really wasn't a thing yet. Gender dysphoria was the least stigmatizing term we could hold on to. Back then, there were only real women and men, and then there was us. I don't think any of us identified as trans. We saw ourselves as women in deep trouble, working under the temporary label transsexual. Mm. Once we'd had surgery, and that was the goal, we considered ourselves former transsexuals. We disappeared into cis society and left trans behind forever. The notion of retaining trans as part of who we were would have shocked us. I still have trouble getting my head around this concept. I've lived decades thinking of myself as no different to any cis woman, and the idea of moving away from that after having struggled to get there feels strange. There was certainly no such thing as being out as trans in the 1980s. If you didn't pass, you were in trouble. If you did, you were stealth. We all started out in trouble and got out of it as fast as possible. And as for those who couldn't achieve passing privilege, I'm sorry to say I don't know what became of them. Women appeared, women disappeared, and I've no idea what became of any of them. That was just how it was. In 1989, just one year after starting hormones, I had surgery, I got my documents, and then I too disappeared. That was just how it was. That's fascinating. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And that's just a really small, that's actually a really small excerpt of a much longer piece. Uh, so once again, it's Is that one we can notes. link to? Yeah, we'll link to it. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Kim. So, Kim, obviously we could have talked about Luke Carpenter from Neighbours. He's had a pretty interesting <laughs> yeah. life. He was in Neighbours for years, but I had such a visceral disliking mm. of that character. Mm. It's really, he's got an interesting background though, Luke Carpenter. Does he really he? does. I think he was a jockey oh, or right. something like that, something bonkers like that. But we're going to talk about Bunny Brook, uh, who plays Alice McKenna in mm -hmm. this episode. This is She appeared three times in guest roles on A Country Practice. She's probably best known, though, for her role uh, as Flo Patterson in the soap opera and movie release version of Number 96 and also for our generation as Auntie Vi in um, yes. East Street. I didn't. Yeah, so you were an East yeah, Street fan, Yeah, but it fan, wasn't until you? you said Auntie Vi that I remembered that she was Auntie Vi in East Street. Yeah. yeah, and also for the generation just a little bit younger than us, Kim, who are probably not listening <laughs> to this podcast, um, she was in yes. Round the Twist, so they know her I've from seen Round a little the Twist bit around the as twist. well. Yeah, me too. She definitely was familiar, wasn't she, when she came which, on screen? Which show did she wear the sailor's cap in? Was that East Street? That's, that's Round, round the, the Twist. No, that's Round the Twist. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's Round the Twist. So I was super interested in discovering that, as usual, with Australian actors, she had quite the life, you know, and quite a life of ups mm. and downs and ins and outs. And, you know, she was a real journey woman. Um, I'm going to take most of this information from a eulogy that was done by Bryce Hallett for, I think, maybe the Sydney Morning Herald. Yeah, Sydney Morning Herald in 2000 when Bunny died. And also from her Wikipedia page, which is very, very detailed for a character actor of yeah, that generation. Great. So I'm not sure who's been in there doing it, but someone really cares about the legacy Good. of Bunny Brook and they've made her her um, Wikipedia page very, very detailed. And also from a 
story that I found just three years before she died uh, when she was appearing in a show at the Pilgrim Theatre in Sydney. So Bunny Brook, don't know, we don't know much about her very, very beginnings and who her parents were or anything like that, but the first sort of known thing about her is that she was raised by foster mm. parents and did everything she could to get away from these foster parents. So her her eulogy says that she was born in 1920 in Bendigo, Victoria, and she was christened Dorothy Jean Cronin. She doesn't look like a Dorothy or a bunny, You're does okay. she? She sort of looks like a va- a vowel or See, a to me or a bev. to me Val and Dorothy Val and Dot are interchangeable. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she could maybe be a dot, but, do- yeah, Dorothy. So uh, she didn't, it says she didn't exactly run away with the circus but did the next best thing by joining the army in Brisbane when she turned 18 in part to escape the rigid uh, rigidity of her foster parents. She says that her acting was a source of horror for all her relatives and she said that in 1965. So she's in the oh. army in the 50s. Like isn't that Really That's kind of interesting, quite bonkers, yeah. you know, for a woman. Um, and after leaving the army, she went over to England and she wanted to learn about being an actor. So while she was an actor, she was in five. While she was in England, she learned in five different repertory companies. Um, so she was just acting nonstop. And when she came back to Australia, she was almost immediately cast in uh, the Middle Park Repertory Group, and she then was an actor, sort of from then on. Her eulogy also, her eulogy, I keep saying eulogy, but it's not a eulogy, it's an mm. obituary, also says that at one time Bunnybrook studied with Marcel Marceau, yeah, you know, the, the very famous mime, French uh-huh. mime artist, which you can see mm. in her face. Don't you think there's something <laughs> Sorry, I was sort just of. remembering the white makeup that she wore for the case. Yeah, <laughs> but there's something very yes. mime esque about her, like very expressive about her mm. eyes and her face, where you can see that she she could probably be a very good clown or a very mm. good mime. Um so she studied that and she and she also had a red nose silent clown called Trumbo, which was a character she created in 6970 for a tour children's show. So the Alice McKenna character probably had a lot in common mm. with Bunny herself. She really loved clowns and clowning and in the mid-70s she began painting and exhibiting them always with a smiling face. I would be so scared <laughs> of those, Kim. I don't know about you. <laughs> um, so interestingly too, in an interview in 1975, says Bryce Hallett, she referred to a broken home, a demoralising stint in the army, a broken marriage when she came back from England. Now, she her broken marriage to a guy called Leonard Brooke meant that she had a daughter hmm. and son. But after that, in her very, very detailed Wikipedia, it talks about after she left her marriage, she basically became a drifter for right. a few years, you know, not just going all over the place and doing all sorts of little jobs here and there. Like, so it's really kind of difficult to to know what her life was like or, or to mm-hmm. pin her down in any sort of way. Um, so she kept going back to theatre constantly back to theatre and and back to these sort of guest roles in television. Um, In 1990, let's see what year it was, she had a nervous breakdown in 1990, it was in the 90s anyway, and didn't work for something like Mm. three years. 
And I didn't realise this, but do you remember another place where we would know her face from is do you remember that crazy bonkers show, Beauty and the Beast, where Stan Zemanek would sit and he'd be surrounded by opinionated women? So she was one of the people on Beauty and the Beast. And while they recorded that, I thought this was kind of interesting and also goes to exactly what, you know, we always talk about with this um, with actors on this show is that while she was taping episodes of Beauty and the Beast, so she'd tape five episodes on a Friday, but she'd work in a fish and chip shop and an ice cream parlour the other days of the week. Also in her Wikipedia page, it said that she run, ran a LGBT club for years and years right. and years. And it's not confirmed, but she lived her, or it's not confirmed that they were partners because of, you know, the time that it was, but um, she lived with Pat McDonald, who was an actress and also her co-star, I think on number 96. Mm-hmm. She lived with Pat McDonald until her death. So it's quite possible that they were partners. Hmm. You know, it says it says on the Wikipedia that they are partners, but it also says that uh, it that it's although the true nature of their relationship was never originally detailed. Many photos of them on holiday and in various overseas locations were featured in magazines. Well, it's interesting. It's a little bit like the statements in that last article I read was that there was no concept of being out. Uh, mm. For Bunny's generation, you know, it wasn't mm. it, it? Just it, yeah. it was less. It, just, it was less common to be out. Yeah, I mean, the assumption is that they were probably partners, but I also think, like, if you were to go through my archive, <laughs> there are loads of pictures of my bestie and I yeah. at beaches yeah. and on holidays together, and doing, do you know? And lots of, and we call each other darling. Yeah, our every message. You know what I mean. So you just never. You actually never really know someone's personal life, do mm. you? Um, so she, yes, she had a nervous breakdown in the mid-90s, which was a few years before her death, according to Wikipedia, this very detailed Wikipedia, which we will post on our page. Uh, Bunny Brook was a heavy smoker and a drinker, and she died in Manly, New South Wales, in hospital on the 2nd of April 2000 at the age of 80 after a two-year battle with bowel and liver cancer. Mm. Um, so interestingly, in... Two things. I love this. this. Is what I mean about this page being so detailed. <laughs> in on the twentieth of January two thousand and nine, her nineteen seventy four silver logie, which was presented to her by John Wayne. Oh wow! Yeah, was purchased by an anonymous Queensland bidder in a twenty four hour auction on eBay for two thousand two hundred and twenty five dollars. Wow. Given that Bunny died in 2000, it is not entirely known how the award then came to be in the possession of the seller. So you see what I mean? Like this is a really mm. weird Wikipedia page. Yeah. Anyway, so that that's the life of Bunny Brook, like I, I think a minuscule amount of it. Do you yes. know what I mean? Like not even a – like I think that was the tiniest bit yeah. of her life. It sounds like she had an enormous life. But what I think we come away with, Kim, after that quote that you gave is that she was an enormously dedicated actor. Don't yes. you think? Like. She just sounds like the real deal. And she was a real, like I believed her the whole time, didn't you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, she was, was absolutely wonderful. So she's, I, I feel like she's along with Colleen, I always say Colleen Bird, but it's Colleen Clifford. <laughs> I feel like she is one of the great guest stars on A Country Practice yeah. over the years and certainly that we've profiled. Absolutely. Well done, Mel. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Now, shall we go on to Fashions of the Field? Fashions of the Field. Now, 
I am all for Shirley's magazine print blouse uh, with that chunky red necklace that she's red, white and black necklace that she's wearing with it. I am all for that. Great. I'll, I will heartily endorse that. I actually like these these episodes back in the 80s are the best for everything, mm. for character, for writing, for fashion, for the works. Yeah, that's a pretty good one, Kim. I'm actually going to go, though, with sexy Maggie Sloan yeah. in the um, – why are we in a different club, by the way? We're in a different <laughs> club to normal. I don't know why. Can someone let us know? Shares. Shares. They're calling it a pub this time and not the club. I don't know. Right. Okay. Hmm. Because it's different. I'm going to say Maggie Sloan in the pub, she's got a navy blouse on that's got like lightning strikes in it. She's got red earrings. And I was just like, you are such a sexy woman. Yeah. But also, like I said, I'm ovulating, so I'm finding everybody very sexy at the moment. We think I'm ovulating. Should I check, should I check my app to see if I am? Because I'm sure our listeners are so interested in that. You know that. you can get ovulation kits. You could just go pee on a stick and Could I? And then I know. Um, so interesting. <laughs> Mel, do you know what's happening next week, next time we have an episode? What? Shirley's going to die. <gasps> We have to say goodbye to oh, Shirley next time. I'm not ready for I that. I know. I know. Season 12, episodes 41 and 42, A Kiss Before Dying. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks very much to Shez Robbie for being our social media queen. Thank you. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Melanie Tate and Kim at Kim Lester. Yes, but much more interesting than me being on Twitter is mm-hmm. The Shane Porteous Appreciation Society, which is oh on God, Facebook. So great. Shez has just, she and SP, the Portagas, as Diane Smith called him, they're like best buds now. They oh, my have, God. They have Zoom it's so great. Like, I don't know how often, but she just. Shez does these very glamorous videos as well with, yeah. um, what did you say? He's, he's called the Portagas. That's what Diane Smith called him when we interviewed her. Such a beautiful man, isn't he? Yeah. Such a beautiful man. So check it out, the Shane Porteous Appreciation Society on yeah. Facebook if you want to Go see. Go and join it, yeah, and watch Shez just being amazing yeah. and very glamorous and fab and interviewing the beautiful Shane Porteous. All right, Kim, have a great fortnight. I'll see you. Actually, no, I'll see you on Weepies. Oh, yeah, we've got another podcast. Check it out. It's called Weepies. Please like and review ACP or Weepies. We would love that. <laughs> <laughs>